if this is your first time back in a while, you've walked into a series of lessons that we're calling Peace Talks. And it's so named because if worry or anxiety is dominating your life, we need to have a talk, a peace talk. And the words really aren't my own. They're really from an old apostle who found some peace during some very difficult times in his life. More on that in just a minute. But he wants to share an antidote that he's lived, not just talked about, but lived, to encourage us that while we may experience some anxiety in our lives, it does not have to dominate any of our lives. No matter what you're going through, God wants you to know peace is more than just some 60s greeting from an old hippie. Peace, man. Peace is more than just something that you could experience during the Christmas holidays. That's a great time. Peace is a very real daily part of living a connected life with Christ. Now, don't take my word for it. Take God's. You can go ahead and flip the slide now. I don't want you to hear it from me. I want you to hear it from each other. So, here's what I want you to do next. Put your shoulders back. Fill those lungs with air. Your heart with hope. And let's read it together. Here we go. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we need some peace. We do. We need some joy. Peace and joy that we can't, we can't crank out of our own wills. You've promised that. You've promised them to be fruits of our relationship with you. And we are leaning into that promise. And we're not the only ones. And this morning we join Cross Kingdom Ministries in, uh, in asking you, please, help us be uh, not just recipients of the Prince of Peace, but to be vessels of that peace. Uh, to be peacemakers, truly, in our families, in our schools, at our places of employment, here in our own church, God. You said that you brought peace to this world. You said that you're the Prince of Peace. You said that we don't have to be anxious about anything, but we can experience this peace that passes understanding. Please, dear God, help us to do just that. And we ask it humbly in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. It stuns me. The words that we just said together as a family are written by a man in a Roman jail awaiting trial. For crying out loud, he's sleeping in a jail cell bed. <laughs> he's eating jail cell food. He's chained to a soldier trained to work in a jail cell. So much for the easy life of an apostle, right? There wasn't much going on in Paul's life when he pins this letter to the church at Philippi to naturally put joy and peace in this man's heart. But let that man experience a supernatural relationship with Jesus. Let that man experience a supernatural love of a Savior intense enough to die for him. Let that man experience the very presence of God through the Holy Spirit and in conditions that are anything but heavenly. And you've got a man who's not just surviving. You've got a man, listen to me, that's singing. Singing. 
In the next section of our great text that we're going to look at this morning, Paul is going to point out two truths that he believes are necessary for that peace that he enjoyed and any type of peace and joy we hope to make a part of our own lives. Now, I brought something with me this morning to to try to bring home those two points. Now, I'm going to set these down here so none of you get nervous that I'm loading this thing, all right? For about 30 years of my life, I have had the privilege and the joy of providing my family with steroid-free, 100% natural game meat. Sometimes to my family's liking, actually most of the time really. And I've done that also with the privilege of getting to do that, to take that, harvest those animals with one of these, with a bow. Now, I did that because I'm not very good with a spear. Guns make me nervous. But with one of these, I can shoot tiny spears pretty accurately out to about 40 yards. And what makes it possible, and this is why I brought it, are these two things here. They're called limbs. Now, this whole thing makes up what I'm going to call today a bow system. Uh, All the parts of the system are important, the rest, the string, the cables that make the cams work, the sights, the riser in between. But at the very foundation of what allows this bow system to move an arrow through the air towards a target are these two limbs because they store the energy and then they release the energy. It's a very effective bow system. Sometimes not in my hands, but it really is an effective bow system. Now, are we tracking that these two limbs are crucial for the energy stored in them, and they are what releases that energy to make these little tiny spears move through the air towards a target? Are we tracking on that? Okay. Now, here's why I would go to all that trouble. Some of you in this room will never own a bow. Some of you will never shoot a bow. But I want you to understand something. You have a bow system in your soul. And I know sometimes that's hard for us to put our minds around when we think of someone who, like Paul, is an apostle. And we think, okay, well, he's got all this supernatural juice flowing through him, and he, can, he could do that in a jail cell. He could, he could uh, work through difficult circumstances and, and people bickering in the church close to where he's working at, and he could deal with you know, the threat of possibly never getting out of that jail. He could do that because he's got something more than we do. And what he's trying to explain to us is, no, he's got a bow system of his soul that is called a belief system. Say belief system. Every single one of you in this room, whether you have a bow system or not, you have a bow system in your soul called a belief system. Say belief system. All that is are some deep-seated convictions that you have in your heart about the way life works. Deep-seated truths that you believe Make life work like you hope it will. Now, all of us have behaviors. All of us do things. All of us have actions and words that we speak and that we aim at our marriages, that we aim at our places of employment, that we aim here amongst the church. All of us take aim with those words and actions by the use of a belief system. Your belief system is what makes your behaviors happen. Tracking with me? 
If you've got faulty behaviors, it's because you've got a faulty belief system. You've got a faulty bow system in your soul. If you have sound behaviors, most likely it's because you've got a sound belief system in your soul. And so I'm going to say this. If your life is filled with anxiety, I mean dominated by it, if your days are filled with worry, if you're eat up with the frets like my nanny used to say, you may need some new limbs for your bow system in your soul. You may need a new belief system. And Paul is going to make some suggestions on which brand to choose. He's going to tell us about two foundational limbs in his life, two foundational truths in his life that make up his belief system that enable this man, again, in a jail cell to say, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. I'm telling you, you can have no anxiety about anything. But in prayer and with petition, with thanksgiving, you can make your request known to God and this peace that passes all understanding will be yours in Christ Jesus. He didn't just say that to a select group of folks that were his leaders. He said that to an entire church at Philippi and here we are thousands of years later reading them saying, do you really mean that God? And God is so hoping that we know he means it. Paul is a unique guy. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. So if you read the New Testament, most, most likely you're going to read the, the words of Paul as he's writing to other Christians to say, here's what I'm finding out about living in Christ. Here's what's working for me. Now, if you read any of those letters, you're going to find in every one of them something happening over and over again. In the early chapters of the book, he's going to talk about the belief system of that church. Because he knows if he works on the belief system, then behaviors are going to follow. He does the same thing in the book of Philippians here. Before he says anything about, okay, you can be anxious for nothing, he says, oh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, we're going to have to talk about what beliefs will make that possible. And we're going to look at two of them. One this week and one next week. And so I hope you're back. But before we look at the first limb, a little aside, takes about two minutes, but please pay attention. Regardless of how much you get prepared to take aim at peace, I promise you there will be forces at work that will try to prevent that. No matter how much you work on getting the right limbs in place, no matter how much you practice using them, I'm telling you there's going to be forces that are going to try to prevent you from having true peace and true joy in your life. It happens when I go hunting. No matter how much, no matter how great a bow that I have, no matter how much I practice, there's always forces at work to keep me from hitting a target that I'm aiming at. The wind, rain, cold, gravity, lack of padding on my rear end that allows me to sit very long. All of that works to my detriment to actually harvesting a turkey or a deer or an elk. All of it. Now, for you... As you take aim at peace and true joy in your life, no matter what limbs you prepare with, there's going to be forces that are going to try to stop that. And they're all what I want to call the big D's. Death. Divorce. Disease. Debt. And just overall, the devil. Some of you are enduring some incredibly hard times right now, so I do not want to make light of any of this. Some of you are going through some times that have some gravity to them. 
that you just can't keep your chin lifted up. And I, I understand that. Been through some lately myself. But Paul's going to say, I want you to understand something. In spite of those things, you can experience joy. In spite of those things, you can experience a peace that passes understanding. But you're going to have to have a look at your belief system. And two limbs are essential. Here's the first one. You ready? Go ahead, the next one. God is in control. That's the first major limb. You're going to find Paul writing about this in every one of his letters because that belief system is what informs or enables him to behave like he does and even write about it. God is in control. Say those words with me. God is in control. One more time. God is in control. Now, that can just be you parroting the words of a preacher. What I hope is they become a permanent part of your internal bow system, of your internal belief system, of your heart. Paul has scarcely dipped his pen in the inkwell and placed it on the parchment when he's writing to Philippi. And he says, I am sure that the God who began a good work within you will keep right on helping you grow in his grace until his task within you is finally finished on the day when Jesus returns. And you are not some victim of faith. Sorry. No matter how difficult things are going on, you're not a victim of faith. God is doing a work in you. We are all beneficiaries of His incredible plan for our lives, so much so that even when things go wrong, He promises, I'll work them, if you just be patient with me, for good. Why? Because of God's sovereignty. Now that really is the one single word that, that, that I really want, want you to take away with when we talk about God is in control. God is sovereign. I know it's a little bit biblical. So we don't use it a whole lot. But that word sovereign is powerful. Because it makes me ask, who's reigning in my heart? Who's, who's, who's got control of my life? Paul's saying, I want you to know who's sovereigning in me. It's God. He has control of my life. He is the one who's King of kings and Lord of lords of my days and of my weeks and of my family and of my job. He alone reigns. And so he writes in Philippians chapter 1, and verse, chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Everything that's happened to me, even though he's in prison, has been a great boost in getting out the good news concerning Christ. For everyone around here, including all the soldiers over at the barracks, they know that I'm in chains because I'm a Christian. And because of my imprisonment, many Christians have seemed to have lost their fear of chains. Because some of them were headed that way. Wow. Paul didn't want to be in prison. But as Paul's considering, what do I do with this? He's chosen because God's sovereign in his heart to see this time in prison as an opportunity to talk to a soldier chained to him about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you talk about captive audiences. The guy's not going anywhere. And so he writes about that. I know this looks bad, but I'm telling you it's good for the kingdom. And so that's good for me. He goes on in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, but whatever people's motives are for doing this, the preaching, and I didn't, I didn't say this well enough, Leading into this text, Paul has is, is got some guys that are preaching around him. And they're not preaching because they love the Lord. They're preaching because they're making money. Heard of any preachers like that? They're preaching because they're making money and it, it has brought them power and influence. And he says, that's all right. Philippians 1.18. 
whatever their motive for doing it, the fact remains that the good news about Christ is being preached. And I'm glad. Paul was not worried about preaching from motives that were high and perfect as long as he knew that God was at work in them and through them to willing to work towards his good pleasure. Please, brother, take a good look at the bow of Paul's soul, the belief system of Paul's soul, and you're going to see two limbs, and one of them is the sovereignty of God. And I say all that because in this battle for anxiety that I guarantee is wrecking a lot of our families, who you believe is sovereign is absolutely essential in you winning this battle. Here's why. Anxiety at its core is a perceived loss of control. Now think about that one for a minute. I think Max is right on the money when he writes that. Anxiety at its core is a perceived loss of control. Now we know how this works. Control creates a sense of calm. A lack of control tends to create a sense of anxiety. If we're certain about how a, a certain situation is going to turn out, we feel better. If we're uncertain about the outcome, we get a little anxious and restless. Now, you don't need me to convince you of that. You've experienced that. One of the studies that I looked at this last week involves a study in World War II. The researchers looked at the impact that combat had on thought patterns and emotions of soldiers. That's probably not going to surprise you then to learn that living in a constant state of engagement with the enemy will do a soldier in in less than 60 days. 60 days of engaging the enemy without a break will break them. They need rest. They need recreation. If a soldier is capable or expected to be capable of making good decisions for himself and his unit, they lose the capacity to cope and have to be restored and have to be renewed in order to function well as a human being. That's probably pretty understandable. In World War II, however, there was a group of those who were in the military, who were in the service of our country, who didn't experience the same level of angst and anxiety that the foot soldiers experienced. And they were pilots. Pilots. Go ahead and flip to the next one. Fighter pilots were the most calm of any soldiers in the military services, unlike the soldiers on the ground. The fighter pilots in the air registered a higher level of calm, and 93% of them registered a higher degree of job satisfaction. This stunned the psychologists, even though that one out of two fighter pilots, listen to me, were killed. You signed up to be a fighter pilot, 50% of you died. But out of those that survived, 93% said they'd re-enlist in a moment. What was the difference? They found out that the fighter pilots said they had a greater degree of control. They were able to place their hands on the controls of the plane where the soldiers on the ground felt like they had none in the battlefield. The ones on the battlefield felt vulnerable. The ones on the battlefield felt exposed. They had no perception of what's coming next. The fighter pilots, however, had the perception that at least they knew what the mission was and how it was going to end, even though sometimes it didn't end well. It still produced calm. Now, you don't have to go to war to understand anxiety coming from circumstances that are out of control. Just drive in San Antonio during rush hour. Worse, Houston. German psychologists have just shared that one hour in intense traffic increases the chance of a heart attack three times. Traffic can kill you. <laughs> 
in part because while you're, you're maybe the best driver since Dale Earnhardt, I mean, we're talking about hands 10 and 2, we're talking about you know all eyes on the road, no distractions. You still got the jerk next to you who's checking his text messages, going 75 miles an hour, or the woman putting on makeup at 75 miles per hour. Come on, ladies. We have no control over that, and so it puts anxiety in our spirits to do so. Traffic really can kill you because anxiety is a perceived loss of control. All right. Having said all that. How do we respond to lessen the anxiety in our lives? Here's one way. You take control. You stockpile the canned goods in case of a nuclear fallout. You wrap your kids in bubble wrap in case they fall off their bicycle. You never give your heart to anybody for fear that they might break it. You opt to take control. But you know what, ironically? You live long enough in this world and you find out we can't take control because control's not ours to be taken. No matter how many nuts and veggies you eat, you can still be diagnosed with cancer. No matter how much money you've saved and invested, you can still lose it in a total nation meltdown. You may carry your own parachute with you on the plane, but the plane may not even make it off the ground before everyone's killed on it. We cannot control every outcome. And for this reason, the most anxious people in the world, listen to me, are control freaks. <laughs> Ironic, isn't it? That the people who are trying to stave off anxiety by controlling everything are more anxious because they realize they can't control it. Someone said the only certainty in life is the lack of certainty. I think they're right. And the control freak is a certainty addict then. Attempting to create a system that's fail-proof and safeguarded, who tries to anticipate every possible collapse and then the inevitable always seems to happen which leads that person in this downward spiral of anxiety and failure and more anxiety and more failure. Who wants to call that living? The Apostle Paul has a better idea. He says, rather than try to control everything, he suggests that we turn all control over to God. That we allow Him to be the true sovereign, not just the spoken or the sung sovereign, but the true sovereign of our lives, truly reigning over every decision, every day, every relationship that I have. And what that does is it shifts our focus from me managing and hyper-controlling my world around me and what I can do, and it shifts it to remembering His power and His majesty and what not only He's done, but what He's doing. Amen? That's how it matters. Because peace is within reach, not because of the absence of problems. We all know that. But from the presence of a sovereign God. And Paul wants us to know that. That's why the passages of Scripture are littered everywhere that talk about this. Proverbs 21.30 Nothing clever, nothing conceived, nothing contrived can get the better of God. Count on it, friend. In Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35. The prophet says, all the people of the earth are nothing when compared to our God. He does whatever he thinks best among the angels in heaven and here on the earth. Nobody can stop him or challenge him by saying, what do you mean by doing these things? Because there's none like our God. Count on it, friend. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, the writer says, God regulates the universe by his mighty power of his command. He sustains all things. Count on it, friend. 
He knows the name of the stars. He knows the, the name of the birds, great and small. And he sustains them all, the old song used to sing. Oh, friend, the Bible reveals a sovereign God of wonders with a plan of life that is not going to be derailed because he's on the throne and no one and no thing will dethrone him. That's why Paul is writing to the church at Philippi and he starts by saying, he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. He will do that. To live as Christ to die is gain. Count on it, friend. For God is at work within you, helping you to want to obey Him and then helping you to do what He wants. Count on that, friend. You can't miss Paul's belief in God's sovereignty when you read his letters. He lived in the shadow of God's incredible protective wings. He stood under the Niagara grace, Niagara Falls of His grace. He focused his life on God. And it showed. How about you? How sturdy are the limbs of your belief system? Do you honestly believe in the sovereignty of God? If you're saying, I'm not sure, or if you're saying, no, we may have just stumbled on the cause for your anxiety. Think of it this way. Three passengers are flying on a commercial flight. And they're all in a row. Passenger A, B, and C. And they're having a conversation as the plane taxis down the runway. And it's about the pilot of the plane. Passenger A says something that the other two passengers think is a little bit odd. Passenger A says, I don't think there's a pilot on this plane. I got on the plane and the door was closed. I've never seen one. I don't think there's a pilot flying the plane. I think it's one big drone. And there's some pilots in the underground cavities that are flying this. And the other two look at him like he is out of his mind. Now, Pastor B says, no, I know that there's a pilot. I just think he's asleep. I know what these pilots do. They get up the, the plane up in the air and they, they set it on autopilot and then they sit back and they read a book or they get him a pillow and take a nap. They have no idea what's going on until the autopilot alarm goes off and maybe they land. Passenger number C can't believe what she's hearing. She looks at both passenger A and B and says, I've got to disagree with both of you. She said, I can tell you that we are flying in a plane that has a good pilot. He is alert. He is capable. He cares. And I know because I had breakfast with him. He's my husband. So you've got three different views, three different belief systems about the pilot of the plane. One says there's no pilot. B says there's a pilot, but he's disengaged. And C says there's not only a pilot, I know him. And he's both capable and he's caring. Now... Fast forward in this scene, 15 minutes, and all of a sudden turbulence strikes. And the plane is bouncing around like popcorn in a popcorn popper. And, and I'm wondering, what's the reaction going to be to these three passengers to this sudden arrival of turbulence? What are their behaviors? Well, you've got to look at their belief systems, right? That's what we've been talking about all morning long. And there's some three very different belief systems 
And so that's going to produce three very different behaviors. The first two are going to be sucked into the sinkhole of anxiety. Because neither one of them know who to talk to that might actually help. They don't think anybody's in the pilot's chair. And if he is, he's basically asleep, allowing the plane to fly itself. Which means we're on our own. Now, the passenger in seat C does not enjoy the turbulence. But if there's anybody who's at peace, she is. Because she has a relationship with. She has experience with the pilot. And she trusts him. Most days. So who's flying your plane? Who's the captain of your ship? It may seem like an oversimplification, but really there are three views of God in the world. One believes there's no God at all. The second believes that there's a God, but he's made the world and pretty much just backed away from it. And the third believes, like Paul, that there is a God. And you can have a relationship with him. And you can understand through that relationship how much he cares for his world. And how much he's involved in his world. Even in the midst of great turbulence... You can know that he loves his passengers and he's determined to get them home safe. So let me ask it again and we're done. Who's flying your plane? I know what you're saying here. Who's flying your plane? The scriptures never promise a life free from turbulence. We know that. We will have trouble, but the scriptures promise the presence of a loving God who's determined to get you home safe, friend. That's why there's a cure for anxiety. And it's rooted in one of these limbs in your belief system, in that bow system of the soul, if your belief system has the sovereignty of God included in it. Now, I know this isn't complicated, but it does require some courage. The most significant thing about you and me is how we answer this question, who is God? And what does it matter anyway? And your answer for that question allows those of us to look at your life and to forecast your level of anxiety. The more you understand and welcome the sovereignty of God, the greater the odds are you're going to have a peace-filled life. And the less you believe in the sovereignty of God, the greater the odds are you're going to be one anxious person. One sentence. Let me simplify this. Anxiety decreases as faith in the living God increases. Now that's not just peace talk. I believe it's peace truth. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. And again, we want to believe. We're trying to believe. We're trying to place you right there on the throne, put you in the captain's chair, and leave you there. But there's so many other gods of this world that keep pulling our attention away. And we get anxious when, when that attention goes. Would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, complete this work in us? Could we be a church known for our peace? Could we be a church known for being anxiety-free most of the time? Could we be a church where, where you come when you want to learn how to move through a day and a week with joy 
and to settle this in your heart that it's all going to be okay. We can't do that without you. We couldn't even begin because it's, it's the love of Christ and this incredible message that you raised him from the dead and the Spirit's been sent into this world that we can walk with you. All of that's from you. And we receive that, but we're asking this morning, if, if we're not living that, would you just help us be honest with ourselves and honest with who the real captain is sitting in that chair? And if it's us, would you help us get out and let you take over? And there's some that you brought here today that are right on the verge of doing that. And maybe this is the message that's touching their heart that says, enough of me trying to fly this plane. I've made some huge mistakes and you're telling me, Jimmy, that's not going to keep me from this relationship with God? Oh, heavens, no. That's why he gave us his son, Jesus. And so, God, would you nudge them a little bit closer to saying, I want to make him the captain of my ship, pilot of my plane. And Father, we'll see those sins washed away today in the waters of baptism and see them walk out of here filled with the Spirit, filled with new life and new hope. And I've got some brothers and sisters you've brought in here today, and this message has hit them right in the heart because they have been living this week in some serious anxiety that you say we don't have to live in. If it's because that you really haven't been the sovereign in their lives, they want to put you back on that throne. And they want to tell you how sorry they are for trying to live without you being there. And so we've got elders all over this room, God. And so I'm asking that you'll stir in their hearts the right words to pray with them and over them for these brothers and sisters who want to put you where you belong. As the captain, as the general, as the leader of our souls. We thank you in advance for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. And everyone said, let's stand and praise him, church.